I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now and the world's biggest DFW and LMA enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) LMA... Louisa May Alcott. Louisa May Alcott. Oh, yeah. Just for people right. who are not, not aware of you. Of, <laughs> a friend of, of your pod. Yeah. Um, the subject who, of your pod. Maybe yes. who have not heard of, of Peyton until today. Um, mm-hmm. Louisa May Alcott and David Foster Wallace. Unique combination. Yes. But yeah, uh, you totally. do have a sort of viral Twitter thread about this very subject that yes. maybe we can get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but first of all, we want to say thank you for being here today. Welcome uh, to being on Cavity Show. Yeah, welcome to episode 70. And it's a ep- thrill to be here. Peyton Another decade. is <laughs> joining us from Toronto. Is that right? You live That's in, right, yeah. In Canada. So Convexity. Um, yeah, two against Convexity. one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> And... Um, Peyton's also written, I should say, if, like you have a full bio of places yeah. where you've published in Vanity <laughs> Fair and Pitchfork, Billboard. You've written a lot about music, a lot about um, Louisa May Alcott, obviously, mm-hmm. and um, Little Sufian Women. Stevens. Um, yes. A lot about music that Dave Star will know Wars. more about. <laughs> and, and American Girl Dolls. So yes. we will yeah. talk. Uh, for Notably. people who can't see this, which is yes. everyone, because we don't record a video, <laughs> is that we have a guest, another guest, yes. who is um, one of your children. Do you want to introduce yes. him? So um, <laughs> joining us on the call today is um, Helen Candenza. He's 18 inches tall. He's made of vinyl, and he has a soft cloth body. <laughs> this is, I've been an American Girl doll fan since I was a kid. For those who don't know, which might be a lot of you, um, this is a... Um, brand that like teaches kids about history they make dolls from different historical periods they also have like uh, like a modern line and they have a line where you can like customize a doll so I went on the customize a doll website with infinite jest open next to me and like (laughs) you know pulled from the physical descriptions of how to make my very own Helen Candenza doll I had a friend make a little tennis outfit for him he he has his little doll-sized tennis racket and he's you know he's very uh, happy to be on the show. His American, like they make everything. They have a sports injury kit for dolls, and so his left oh, wow. ankle, his ankle is taped up. Like he is canonically <laughs> compliant. In Does every he have way. a small bottle of lemon pledge that's uh, um, proportionate to his body as well? Not lemon pledge, although I have considered um, shelling out the ten dollars for like the toothbrush kit because I feel like Ooh. that's. Oh <laughs> yeah, get a NASA mug and uh, make yeah. it a complete ensemble. Yeah. No. So this Hal doll, I have to say, is yeah. maybe darker skin than a lot of people are picturing. Um, yes. But this is actually from the text that yep. uh, the Middle Eastern attache. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, have the book open. I can't quote right. page and verse here. But mm-hmm. uh, we're assuming, right, that Hal's yeah. biological father is the <laughs> mid Mid Eastern attache, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, so. That was another thing. Um, he's often like people when they fan cast him, they're like, "Oh, Michael Sarah, um, oh, the guy, yeah, yeah. the guy from Moonrise Kingdom." That's my Hal. In the book, like mm. Hal's skin is described as radiantly dark. He's described as being the only extant in Candenza who looks in any way ethnic. I'm, I'm quoting um, oh, Wallace yeah. there, um, and Joi had looked ethnic, but he's no longer extant. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. right, and so. Um, 
and, and, and you know, I, I, I actually, like, you can pick skin tones in the customizer. So I had, I was going between two, and I, like, pulled my, like, doll collecting group, and I was like, which one do you do we think, like, which skin tone matches the description <laughs> in the book? And they were like, radiantly dark, go for it. And I'm like, all right, here we go. So he is uh, skin tone number four, which is, uh, you know, he's... <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Can I take a screenshot of us yes, right now for the, for the Instagram, and we got Hal in there? <laughs> Got it. So yeah. I nice. I met uh, Hal and Peyton mm-hmm. this summer at the <laughs> DFW conference in Austin, yes. mm-hmm. and uh, you know this is one reason why I wanted to have you on the show is mm-hmm. I had not read your book until after the conference, and yeah. you know I I wish that we had ordered a lot more. I wish we I we had officially yeah. told you like bring a lot of copies of your book because they sold out <laughs> and everyone oh, wanted nice. to read your book. Yeah. Um, partly based on your um, paper, your presentation, yeah. which I want to talk about a little bit in a minute. And mm-hmm. it was um, about uh, fan fiction. Mm-hmm. But maybe I kind of wanted to start there of like, sure. how did you discover Wallace? How did you hear about the conference? Like what was mm-hmm. sort of your path to to us meeting? Yeah. So, I mean... I'm going to tell this story, and I'm, I'm sorry, it's going to make maybe a lot of listeners feel old, but I discovered Wallace <laughs> um, when I was 11 years old. Um, Whoa, that's yeah. very young. <laughs> um, but con- <laughs> consider the lobster had just come out, so like you can put mm-hmm. the timeline together there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was poking around on my, parent, my dad's bookshelf looking for something to read, and consider the lobster was there. It had that funny little lobster waving its claw. And I'm 11, and I'm like, this looks like it's fun. It's going to be fun for me, an 11-year-old, right? I... <laughs> so I pick up the book, and I don't know if you remember off the dome, but the very first essay in the porn Consider essay. the Lobster. Yes, it's Big oh, Red Big Sun. Red Sun. Yeah. It's, about, it's about his... It's uh, vile. It's, it's about his trip to the, like, the Oscars Adult video news, yeah. And I'm 11 Vegas, years old yeah. reading this and just like... <gasps> I mean, obviously, I'm not going to put it down. I'm like, oh my god, this is like, yeah, that's scandalizing. <laughs> and... Do you remember the the part about the the actress, the starlet, who has the the valve under yeah. her armpits for her inflatable breast size? Yeah, that's, yeah, that stuck with me. I mean, that yeah, that that also that's not actually true though. That was embellished. I I know that as well. And anyway, so like yeah. several details from that essay. I, I don't know. I know that, like, then the book was, like, the subject of some controversy in the household that I'd, like, gotten mm. a hold of it. Even. <laughs> it's, like, and on I, the highest shelf and you used a little stepladder to get well, up to it kind of thing. I don't know. I, th- I think it was, it was a problem that I had read it at all. I think uh, my dad was, like, punished for having, like, left it out in my... <laughs> that, that and um, I Am Charlotte Simmons, which, like... Again, like that's Tom that's Wolf, a, like, yeah, yeah, and that like opens with like a pretty graphic depiction of Felicia. And I had just seen the oh, cover okay. with like the fun cheerleader on. <laughs> What's you that know. book called again? Oh, um, let me write that I am down. Charlotte Simmons. <laughs> yeah, you're like, uh, could you send me a link to that? <laughs> <laughs> Which we don't need to get into. But anyway, so I was, you know, I had a, a bad habit, maybe of or a good habit of like raiding my dad's bookshelf and getting mm-hmm. into stuff I wasn't allowed to read, and then. In, um, when I was around, I don't, uh, when I was around 15 or 16, he passed away and I was sort of, um, Mm. I was, you know, dweeby enough at that point that like that news made its way to me and, um, I got very curious. Um, I seem to remember, although I think I may be misremembering, but I was working one, um, 
Christmas as like as a, an employee at the local bookstore, and, and I seem to remember like the Pale King just coming out and being like big that year. So, um, is this in Vancouver, the Vancouver oh, area? Yes. You know what? It was. It was actually like so. I actually I worked at the chapters on Granville Street. Um, oh, okay. The the Christmas like the season the Christmas season of the year that he passed away. So. There was a lot of David Foster Wallace on display. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a teenager at the time, so they had me like manning the twilight table. I was not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was not, uh, you know, hawking David Foster Wallace to people. But yeah, I, I do remember, like, yep. that was a big memorial year. I was aware of him. Um, mm-hmm. It really wasn't until the pandemic, though, that I took a deeper dive, um, because I, <laughs> I essentially like I, I, I came to realize. Um, kind of very early on in 2020, I was like, I'm not going to read more in a single year. I'm not going to have more time to read in a single year than I will this year. So this mm. is the year that I'm going to talk, tackle all the big books that people always talk about reading, but don't like ever get around to. We're doing Proust. We're doing Carol <laughs> B. Johnston. We're doing War and Peace. We're doing Infinite Jest. And, <laughs> and of those, um, I think... Like, I, I enjoyed a lot of them, but Infinite Jest far and away made the biggest and most immediate impact on me. It just reorganized my brain. Maybe as a consequence of just the way that I was reading and the amount of time I had to read, I got through it in less than a month. Damn. Like, That's real fast. No, and, and, not, and it was not a chore at any point. I, there was, like, kind of an initial, I was loving it, and then I got to Wardeen, and I was like, uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Which might be a common experience, but... I, I, I didn't, I still, I, I don't know how that made it in. I don't think it belongs there, but, um, I, I found. At least it's fairly yeah. short and it doesn't really get revisited. I, yeah. Much, I mean, sure. I could, we I could talk about this for a while because I yeah. think it's, it's not really defensible. Like you said, it's no, probably no. Yeah. a much better book without it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think yeah. how it ended up in there was mm-hmm. that he, as a grad student wrote this thing for Arizona mm-hmm. and if you look at what he wrote in grad school, it was a lot of like mm-hmm. voice exercises. Like he was doing a lot of different voices and he was in grad school yeah. in 1985. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so 1985, like what was not just socially acceptable, but like yeah. funny or like mm-hmm. even literary was weird shit like this. And I think yeah. he was trying to say like, Oh, I had, you know, he had been to Boston <laughs> or like, right, right. you know, he had been to New York and like, yeah. Oh, I, I, he grew up in Illinois. He was not like some urban guy. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to tell the black experience, you know? Yeah. Um, but the original title of it was Las Meninas, mm-hmm. which is this famous painting, Vasquez yeah. painting. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, you know, the little people. And the whole thing mm-hmm. is just a problematic mess. But like, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it's definitely it's definitely like not aged even yeah. you know, at all. Like it's aged mm-hmm. even worse. Yeah. Um, and we have... <laughs> You know, try to contextualize it as much as we can, but that that is yeah. there's where some people, younger yeah. than me, put it put it down. No, yeah, uh-huh. like so that's I say that only because like it was the one hiccup. It was the one place where I was like, right. oh god, I don't know. I, I will <laughs> say also, I mean, this is heady stuff we're getting into right off the the top, but I, I like my other kind of familiarity with Wallace had been. Um, I knew about Jamie Loftus's project where she ate. Infinite <laughs> Jest. Yeah. How did that she ever do on that? I don't know. I didn't ever saw like a resolution um, to that was, story. Did you? I think the YouTube video where she, you know, the 
where she collects all the clips was sort of the culmination. But I was aware mm-hmm. of Infinite Jest like reputation. I was aware that um, yeah. it had that reputation in part because Mary Carr had spoken publicly about um, her experiences with Wallace and the ways in which he'd been physically and emotionally abusive to her. Um, yeah. So I, I, I knew that I wanted to tackle Infinite Jest. I, but I had to do some reading just on her, on, on Mary Carr's um, allegations and her experiences in their relationship. And kind of the thing that made me think, okay, it's, it's all right to read this book was one that Mary Carr herself in, in the Twitter thread where she spoke about this said, like, I don't want people to not read Infinite Jest, right? Mm-hmm. And in her book, yeah, The Art of Memoir, which I subsequently read, she said she talks about like her favorite parts of Infinite Jest. So mm. she's not she wasn't airing these things to, you know, put a a, a ban on Infinite Jest yeah. or anything. But um, yeah. it just felt important to acknowledge that. And also, like, sorry, when I say like the thing that made me think, OK, this is all right to to read and participate in was that. She spoke about receiving a handwritten letter of apology from him for, like, the specific things that he'd done. Mm -hmm. And that struck me as, like, okay, like, this is someone who has made amends and, you know, worked, like, worked through this issue with her, Mm -hmm. which is quite a different situation from some certain, you know, famous men who deny all wrongdoing, refuse to, like, ever make amends for anything they've done. And and I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, like, this is someone I can, like, in good conscience engage with i i will say that like along with getting really into wallace which i am (laughs) um i i feel that like it behooves me to also like read everything mary carr has ever written which i have and Mm. um Mm. adrian miller's memoir in the land of men which is also about her um experience of her relationship with wallace um i've I've read all that like i I think it's important to if you're going to be a fan to also like be very, very aware of you know the women in his life and read Karen, Karen Green's yeah. book Bow Down. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Adrian Miller book, uh, which yeah, I, I definitely have some problems with because I think some of the <laughs> stuff she brought up in there is really not like what. Anyway, I don't want to get into it too much, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but yeah. I do I do appreciate mm-hmm. what you're saying about you know mm-hmm. that with Mary Carr, I do mm-hmm. believe that he had made amends and apologized yeah. to her, and she had accepted it. She writes about mm-hmm. this in Lit, yeah. and that. And that that does matter to me. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, yeah. if you're if you're someone who is unrepentant, fucking asshole to the day they die, yeah. and just say, yeah. you know, blame someone else. That's a little bit of a different case. Like every case yes. is different. Yeah. But it does matter to me, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who has maybe not lived a perfect life either and done yeah. things that I regret. It does matter to me if someone apologizes to me or if mm-hmm. I apologize to them and yeah. try to make amends. Yeah. So there, there's definitely like shades of gray to every interaction but like yeah. few few people posthumously have had their lives and relationships you know yeah. written books about so soon yeah. after their death um mm-hmm. it is a very so what interesting you're saying, case Matt, is like he used to be a piece of shit people <laughs> can change yeah it's it's not people even can change fucking yeah. dave man it's, it's not even like he used to be bad but then he stopped it's it's like he recognized that he harmed mary carr and wrote a letter of apology mm-hmm. to her which i don't mm-hmm. i think many you know survivors of abuse don't get right and sure, yeah. and it's kind of what everyone wa- wishes for so when There's i learned probably that a done long that, letter too yeah. i imagine as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> highly art- <laughs> highly articulated yeah. and yeah. encyclopedic in nature yes yeah. so <laughs> i once i i learned about that i i was like okay i can go ahead and order infinite jest i read it i was like this is 
my life is different now. <laughs> and, and at the time, I was actually editing both sides now, and I submitted a draft, like, after reading Infinite Jest, and my editor was like, what did you read that has made like this <laughs> drama? <laughs> and I had to roll it back in a big way. But um, oh yeah, as you mentioned, one of the the things that made it from that kind of post Infinite Jest draft was um, there's a moment where so the book Both Sides Now it's a young adult novel about a trans boy who is a high school debater. He's very competitive. They make it all the way to the national debate tournament, mm-hmm. only to learn that the topic. Um, that he has to debate is trans rights. So if he wants to yep. win... And, and bathrooms. Uh, if he wants to yeah. win, he has to, he's going to have to debate against, you know... His own humanity. His own his own rights, yeah. right? So yeah. he's figuring out what to do about that. And um, in one round... like, And he's also negotiating a crush on his debate partner, who is... Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. So anyway, a, sure a pivotal is. moment at the national debate tournament winds up being they run into a... <laughs> <laughs> a couple of debaters from uh, a tennis academy just outside Boston, mm-hmm. and <laughs> um, afterward, he uh, after they, they they mop the floor with these debaters from Boston, um, but then afterward he sees the boys like consoling one another and kissing, and it just it's it's like it makes him aware of everything he's suppressing with his own debate partner and his crush. Right. Uh, <laughs> Quote, who hail weirdly from a tennis academy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really weird that the Sly Infinite Jest reference made it into your book, it's, for sure. Peyton. It's pretty funny. <laughs> and I mean, it's like, they're, like, they're, they get to speak. Like, my, my Boston Tennis Academy debaters, like, get to speak. Their, their names are James and Matthew. James and Matthew, right? Which, so, like, that's Hal Maddie and, Pemulus? Yeah, it's, it's Hal and Pemulus's, um middle names so it was like a very oh yeah yeah, yeah. wink wink nice. nudge nudge um that like nobody picked, nobody will pick up on unless you're like very in you never the know well, i forgot those names yeah. with their middle names but i thought like mm-hmm. james and Kendenza and maddie penniless yeah. Yeah. so like you know but so okay it, yeah, yeah that because your sort of <laughs> fan fiction like vibe is that you want Pemulus and Hal to be together, right? I mean, romantically, yeah. Which... I'm saying it's Halulus Nation. I'm saying the snow <laughs> was virgin white, yachting cap white. Um, <laughs> I'm saying there was um, scattered homosexuality at Enfield Tennis Academy. Much of it emotional and unconsummated. I'm just, I'm, I'm just. <laughs> these are just <laughs> some of the theories. Yeah, some, some of the, the some ideas of the, rattling around. Awesome. Some of the the moments. Yeah. And the book Infinite Jest itself makes its way into this novel as well as uh, yes. serving as a as a stack along with yes. uh, War and Peace, right? Yeah, um, there's some it's a makeshift podium. Yeah, That's so right, yeah. so you can very much pick up on like the love that I have for the book. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, it wound up being, I mean, a real like consolation to me as I was just going through some stuff in my personal life and trying to like get this book out the door, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very glad to have found it, and then. So that was kind of mid-2020, and then I, I, again, had nothing but free time on my hands to read, so picked up, you know, Wallace's entire bibliography and just read and read and read, and mm-hmm. here I am, yeah. So and then the, you find yourself at a Wallace conference last yeah. year. <laughs> so this year, this year. That's how it happens. 2022. Yes. Oh, yeah, this year, um, yeah. And It's been a long year. <laughs> your, your paper there was on fan fiction and yes. uh, AO3, which a lot of people maybe don't know, Archive mm-hmm. of Our Own probably the main mm-hmm. repository of yes. fan fiction and you know a few things that i learned there are just about the history of fan fiction like i think a lot mm. of people know the name they've heard of it but they don't yeah. actually know what the fuck it is yeah. and um 
uh, one of the main things I learned from it is just who the audience is yeah. and who the producers are, which is mm-hmm. like 80% women yeah. and um, mostly like lesbians. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this makes sense. Like once you go through the history of it, uh, mm-hmm. where this comes from is that, okay, we understand shipping, like going back mm-hmm. to Star Trek era yes. where people are like, okay, th- like just like you were saying in Infinite Jest, there's some mm-hmm. weird sexual tension going on. <laughs> what if, and you know, next thing yeah. you know, people can share this on the internet and you know, there's this big explosion, but do you want to just give us a little bit of a rough overview of that? Like the, the point, the history of it that you were making there? Sure. So I wanted to look at Infinite Jest both as a work of fan fiction in and of itself, but like, which is something that has been widely acknowledged, but not like pe- people will say, oh, it's an, it's an adaptation of Hamlet. It includes mm. certain elements of the brothers Karamazov. Yeah. Um, they can point or, or you know, it, it owes a lot to Ulysses, right? Like there have been entire scholarly papers written on that, but mm. there's not so much of a understanding of infinite jest as fan fiction of those works, right? And so in my presentation, I gave a history of fan fiction, including like at the point of in the composition of Infinite Jest, which was in the 90s when it was still, it was just coming online, but it was still largely like people were writing zines, like <laughs> um, publishers of zines were getting, you know, copyright cease and desist notices. But it was at that point in the 90s when Infinite Jest was being written, um, fan fiction was a response to broadcast television, which Infinite Jest also largely is right like that we know that broadcast television was something that wallace wrote about and cared about very deeply we know that there's a lot of discourse on like television and the future of media in infinite jest um and there's also interestingly like um there are nods to like the culture of um broadcast television fan fiction of the 90s in infinite jest like there's a character who becomes obsessed with mash um steeply's father right yeah um and and has like and and develops this like intense fixation on one character from Mash and just writes reams and reams of fan fiction about this one character. Writes letters to the actor in the studio and, and it just it just becomes um, an obsessive thing. And I actually have some friends who um, are like members of the Mash fandom and write Mash fan fiction in you know in twenty twenty two. And I and I posted just those pages of Infinite Jest. Um, on my blog for them to read and they were all sharing it and was like this is us <laughs> this is amazing so this is us from uh, almost 20 years ago yeah, yeah. so so I, I found a lot in infinite jest um, that seemed relevant to a discussion of fan fiction as it was being produced at that time and then I also wanted to ask like the purpose of fan fiction largely is to explore you know secondary characters you know, who maybe don't get the the status of protagonists, or it's to explore relationships or hidden scenes, things that were left out of the narrative. And all of those are right. major features of Infinite Jest, which would seem to, you know, suggest that, you know, there are so many opportunities for exploration through fan fiction, and yet there is a real dearth of any kind of Infinite Jest fan fiction. So in my presentation, I wanted to both look at Infinite Jest as a work of fan fiction and the why there isn't really very much infinite jest fan fiction like I, I i mentioned you know i said on archive of our own which is the 
premier fanfiction repository, there are five in Infinite Jest fanfiction, so we have time to oh, look okay. at all of them. <laughs> 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 we did. <laughs> tell we tell did. me about yeah. those. I, I didn't get to hear yeah. your talk, so this is, I'm into those. Yeah, so there are literally five. Um, mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, like there's also a culture of like fanfiction as being something you do for a friend. Like mm. fanfiction is very relational. It's, it's a way of connecting with other people. So the first like three fix on like that's kind of the you say fix instead of fan fictions the first three fix mm. on ao3 in the infinite jest category were gifts for other people like okay yeah. in specific like um people like host events where you say like oh i want someone to write me an infinite jest fan fiction and mm. and then you'll be paired with someone who will write that for you and it's it's like a christmas gift exchange <laughs> anyway oh cool. so, it's like a mixtape club but... yeah yeah, so cool. the first three, there's one that's like um, Hal heals himself um, from his aphasia by writing fan fiction, which is a fun concept. <laughs> that's meta. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's one that's like a, a missing scene between um, Johnny Gentle and the premier of Canada, the prime minister of Canada, which is <laughs> that one. That one's actually really funny. Um, wow. And then there's a third one, which is like 10,000 words long. And um and like very carefully trying to hew to like Wallace's voice, which is actually mm. a crossover between Infinite Jest and a webcomic called Homestuck, which I, I don't know if anyone's familiar with. I didn't get any like I don't know. No. nods. But so <laughs> from the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Homestuck is deeply influenced by Wallace generally and Infinite Jest specifically. Like and the link that this person found was like, okay, I'm going to weave infinite jest into the narrative of the characters from homestuck who are french canadian alcoholics <laughs> <laughs> okay so there was like a very natural uh, blend yeah, there yeah. that this person found right. and really ran away with and had a great time with um which was which was very fun um and so those are were the kind of first three and then there's one that is just like porn about avril <laughs> which oh wow. um the less said about that one the better and then um, a recent one, which was, um, like, a romance between Kate Gomford and Joelle Van Dyne. Um, which oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I actually, um, this is funny. I was just on Instagram chatting with, you know, another, like, a fellow Wallace fan who's, like, a 19-year-old college student who, like, found me because I post about Wallace and Infinite Jest sometimes. And and I was saying, yeah, I did a presentation on at the Wallace Festival about fan fiction. She's like, oh, I actually wrote some. It was, like, a love story between... Uh, Kate Gomford and Joel Van Dyne. I'm like, great, I'll present it on you. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. So, I now know the author of that work. And she was like... That's so good. She was a little mortified, but she's very excited to come to the festival um, next year. So, yeah. Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> and then great. in the, the presentation, you had us also try to write some of yeah. our own. I, uh, I heard said, about that. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. I said everyone gets 10 minutes, just like we're going to try to write uh, Drabble, which is like a fan fiction of exactly 100 words. And... And I just let people go crazy, and it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Did people read the, what they'd written? Some of them. We shared yeah. it with our partners. We and, did. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, we what, shared. What did you our write partners. about that? So <laughs> I I remember I wrote <laughs> about um, like if Hal and Oren had kids, Ooh. and and what their kids <laughs> like later on did, and in my fan fiction, their two sons are their only surviving members of the Incendenza family, and they mm -hmm. move to Hawaii and become professional wrestlers. And <laughs> like, this is, and this was based on like yeah. the a true like wrestling family that mm -hmm. I know from Texas, where 
the only surviving like kids did move to Hawaiian. So yeah. that was like not that creative, but like it allowed me to at least get into that like creative space of yeah. like just thinking about you know all the different relationships in the book mm -hmm. and like what what would you really want to see and like I I found it like and Peyton I don't know if you know this but like yeah. that kind of creative shit doesn't happen very often at academic conferences yeah so <laughs> so it's really rare yeah. that we get the opportunity to do something like fun yeah uh, no it wound up being a real that was also I got to share the morning with Danielle Ely and we did like the mm. price is right with the game um, show right <laughs> with like the you know like depend adult undergarments and stuff and so mm -hmm. it wound up being a fun morning and i think yeah i i don't think creative writing exercises happen all that much at academic conferences which by like the dfw conference was the first academic conference i had ever been to <laughs> so <laughs> most of them are not this fun i'm telling yeah, you <laughs> i understand that um and but i also like i i found that like part of the reason i wanted to present on this was that I'd come into kind of Wallace fan groups and found that I was used to like a very participatory creative culture of fandom. And I found mm -hmm. that Wallace fandom was often about like cold analysis and trying to decode the writing and like, what does this mean? What is the correct answer? Which was so just antithetical yeah. to everything that I'd ever learned in my experiences in, in fan communities. So I wanted to kind mm -hmm. of open it up to this other way of fan of doing fan experiences which is like actually you can rather than trying to figure out what happened in the narrative gaps in infinite just like just write it you know just <laughs> decide for yourself what goes yeah. there right so that was that was my like me you know my me getting on my soapbox at the dfw conference it was a lot yeah. of fun yeah, yeah and awesome. i really liked i mean i really liked that what what you say because mm -hmm. you know I, I have been to a lot of DFW mm -hmm. conferences and like in the early stages of them, mm -hmm. they, we did try to include like some creative writing tracks, mm -hmm. like people who had written, because obviously like the book does attract creative people yeah. and it's like, let's have an outlet for them. And like mm -hmm. one, one thing at this year's conference we did was try to have some creative writers who are not there to do like an academic paper but yeah. you know people like dario diofebi and debel and mm -hmm. unfirth and that they're there to speak as writers per se mm -hmm. um but we also every year sort of get people who are just like doing wallace for like a year yeah. you know and they're just like mm -hmm. and it's really bizarre because like mm -hmm. i'm like I i'm there regardless of i'm presenting yeah. anything but to have people that just sort of, you know, fly in and be like, you know, <laughs> next year they're going to go to some other, you know, single author mm -hmm. society next year. And we only see them once. It's sort of it's nice to see people year after year, too, who mm -hmm. like Danielle, you mentioned who's been to camp, every single really. one. I yeah, know, it's like yeah. it's like our That's summer camp. So I, I'm glad you picked up on all of that. I'm glad yeah. that you you were able to to enjoy it. It was really mm -hmm. um, awesome. I, I want to mm -hmm. backtrack even a little bit farther because you mentioned basically take this i really liked what you said about taking mm -hmm. your, your dad's books off the shelf because i was yes. thinking that's how i that's how i became a reader i feel like yeah. um that you know i i loved your book and i don't read a ton of like ya yeah right yeah. and the ones that i do i gotta say i really liked because i have mm -hmm. teenagers my oldest son is 15 my youngest is 12 mm -hmm. So I have kids in the house and like I read their books with them. We buy books together. Mm -hmm. uh, we've read a lot of the popular YA books and I have friends who are other friends who mm -hmm. are write YA stuff. 
Yeah. Um, but I was thinking, like, you know, I, I was born in the 70s, and it was, like, not a great time for YA. Sure, like, sure. there was there no. was still, like, you know, read the Ramona Quimby books and read, like, um, Roll Doll. Yeah, like, I was big into Trixie <laughs> Belden. Like, I don't know sure. if you know Tri- Trixie Belden book. Mm-hmm. But it was, like, really not until later that, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of explosion of YA. So I guess my question yeah. is, like, Partly about you as a writer, like mm-hmm. what was your path to becoming from that like child stealing books off of your dad's yeah. shelves to becoming <laughs> like saying, I want to do this? Yeah. So I had always wanted to be an author. I mean, I when I say always, 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 like I, I was um, seven years old when I kind of inherited an old desktop computer from an older brother and used it to write my first book, which was called Chocolate Island, which was about... <laughs> A group of kids who are marooned on an island made of chocolate. And I still think that idea has legs. Like, That's I might awesome. do something with that, right? Um, but there was, just, more. Yeah, there was always this ambition to be a writer, an author. It was, it was just, it was always what I was good at. Um, I, I had an easy time in English. I loved to read. Um, and I, in college, I studied political science. And after college, I worked in public policy while sort of writing on the side as not quite a hobby, but sort of like with the understanding that I was not going to be able to make money as a writer, like I would need to have a day job. Um, And weirdly, it wasn't until I quit a bad public policy job in 2017 and was sort of applying to other jobs and had a lot of free time to kind of finish up my manuscript that I started taking it seriously. I signed with an agent um, and and was soon enough was just like writing for a living like I I think quitting that job while the intention when I quit was to very much still stay in the public policy sphere um it wound up just being the opportunity I needed to take writing seriously and start writing for a living um initially just through freelance journalism and actually video game writing which is a uh, little known but incredibly lucrative <laughs> contract gig for writers. Sure, um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and but so as for writing young adults, um, that just came out of being, you know, having grown up as a queer teenager with very limited um, opportunities to read queer narratives mm-hmm. um, and going, having to go to fan fiction, in fact, for a lot of quote unquote representation, representation of, yeah, yeah, of like queer life and love stories. Um, and the first agent I signed with had, um, agented a very successful, um, queer YA book, um, that was later made into a movie. So I knew that I wanted him to represent me and I was very lucky that he signed on with me. Um, what was that book called? Uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which was made into Love, Simon, um, but that, oh, okay. yeah, that book wound up, because it was so successful, it wound up really um, opening the door for queer YA as maybe more than like a niche market. And mm. there was a real boom in queer YA. I say was because like, I think we're now entering a regressive period, unfortunately, where a lot of those books are being banned and publishers mm. are less like eager to publish mm. books that are going to be banned in <laughs> like key markets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so wow. I'm, you know, yes. I'm just speaking very, but you know, that was, a, that was a time when a lot, you know, the, like a lot of like kind of really groundbreaking stuff was being published in YA. Um, YA was at that moment, it was coming away from like the dystopia boom. Which, yeah. That was such yeah, a boom. Hey? <laughs> which I, will say, I think the hunger games 
the first book is excellent. I think it's mm-hmm. it is a superb young adult novel. I think very little of what it inspired is any good, which is often the case. Um, and I, I just think Twilight and all of the knockoffs are a wash. That's that's anyway. But so we were sort of coming out of this like big YA franchise era into mm-hmm. a time when like contemporary YA, just about teenagers and their lives and relationships without a lot of embellishment was the moment. Like um, another book that my first agent had um, sold was The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which oh, was... Yeah which is a hugely influential YA novel about a young black girl who um, is the sole witness when her friend is shot by a police officer. Um, and that's also an excellent book, but it just, like, it it shows the shift where, like, suddenly, you know, the, the like, the sell, like, the big sellers, the, like, number one on the bestsellers list for hundreds and hundreds of weeks are just, like, a black girl trying to negotiate life with police violence or, like, a queer boy falling in love and like that's that's the market so um both sides now was very like it was just a very grounded story about a trans boy um doing high school debate and i think it fit very well into that moment um Mm. and it was it was something that i wanted you know to that i i wish i'd been able to give to myself as a younger person and i was very grateful to have have the opportunity to write it yeah yeah there's that mm-hmm. in your thanks. You say that you like were writing towards your partner this book or something like that. Yeah, yeah. My, Be- um... before, like, but before you'd met, before you'd met yeah. him. So it's like, and mm-hmm. in a weird way, it's almost like you were writing this book backwards in time yeah. to yourself, to your younger self, in a way. Yeah, yeah. like I, I yeah. say, like to my younger, like, and and I'm very like honestly, I was even as like a, a person in their in her, their uh, mid twenties, like I was, you know, I'd be in my therapist's office, like. I can't be a trans man. Like, that is not something that I can be. I definitely can't be a trans man and, like, date other men. Like, are you out of your mind? And so I was <laughs> I was honestly just writing both sides now and, like, the, the love story between Finch and his debate partner, Jonah, mm-hmm. to, like, convince myself that it was possible. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, this is an act of yeah, therapy yeah. and, like, self-realization. Yeah, and I'm, so, yeah, I'm now, you know, cool. I now just, you know, like I, I'm in That's a much beautiful. healthier place with regard to my relationships. Actually, the account on Instagram that you found me on, Dave, was um, co-run with me and my partner at the time. <laughs> like we, oh okay, yeah. yeah, which was actually he he picked up Infinite Jest to impress me, which you know says a lot. Um, that was <laughs> that was a big gesture. Oh <laughs> uh-huh, sure. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was very much about like writing toward believing something is possible, and mm-hmm. you know I. It's really unfortunate that, like, in, in just the past year or so, like, um, Moms for Liberty and, like, oh, state governments have come down so hard on um, trans youth. Like, so and, this this yeah. is going on in, in my neighborhood right yeah. now. And we just, had, yeah. we just mm-hmm. had a big election, you mm-hmm. know, last week where we defeated all five of the candidates who were running for school yeah. board on Wonderful. a Moms for Liberty campaign Mm -hmm. but i look up the road in keller texas Mm -hmm. where they have a really nasty school board and they just adopted a books policy that basically Mm -hmm. bans any mention of gender fluidity of trans existence and this is this is something that's happening like in the year 2022 yeah. in our neighborhood like in mm-hmm. people i know are affected by this and yeah. i 
you know, I'm on the board of trustees of our library. Yeah. So I luckily we don't, we answer to no one. We are yeah. a public Good. library. <laughs> and so we can do whatever we want at that library. Mm-hmm. But I am very worried about the schools is that yeah. it seems like there's some places where those kids are really under attack. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and we're seeing that in Canada too. Hey, Peyton with like anti Soji groups. Yeah. And, I mean, fortunately it's less, I think it will be less successful in Canada. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I think, um, <laughs> yeah. the structures of American democracy, if I can just push my glasses on my nose a little bit, like, um, <laughs> Mom, <Literally. laughs> there was a New Yorker article like last week about moms for Liberty, which, uh, didn't quite do all the excavation, but certainly pointed to it being like an astroturfed group, um, by, the Republican Party just trying to exert real control over like school boards and um, not just spread panic about trans children and gender identity, um, but especially um, there's sort of a parallel panic with regard to quote unquote critical race theory, which mm-hmm. they seem to literally define as like any book with a person of color in it. Yep. And <laughs> like this, this Moms for Liberty movement is like a very direct reaction to this. Like it's 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 retaliation to you know like the work of Angie Thomas becoming like widely assigned in schools um, to you know YA adaptations of queer love stories being made right it's and we are you know like I it's you know it's it's we're past the point of just like oh no I hope this doesn't happen like people are already not getting book deals like the if you look at like the YA bestsellers list today like there are. Meant like fewer queer titles, fewer titles by and for people of color. Um, it's yeah, we're so unfortunately we're kind of entering a regressive moment um, in the yeah. culture, which is really it's really a shame. But um, you I'm, mentioned you, know, you mentioned your first no. agent, and, and you mm-hmm. know I, I kind of picked this up from the mm-hmm. acknowledgments that you have changed agents yes. because your current <laughs> agent is. Um, Bonnie Nadeau. Bonnie Nadeau. Yes. David Foster yeah. Wallace is uh, walk us David Foster Wallace is a longtime yeah. agent and Wallace is yeah. like one of his best friends in life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's gotta be We talked like, a lot about mm-hmm. how trying to get her on the show like years mm-hmm. ago, didn't we, Matt? Um, yeah, and I mean mm-hmm. I have I have corresponded with her. Like she knows we exist and like yeah. she knows this podcast mm-hmm. exists. But um, mm-hmm. tell us like how that happened. Yeah. yeah. So, um, in very early 2021, my agent at the time left publishing. Um, it was very sudden. Um, I was suddenly without an agent in my debut year. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and not great timing. Yeah, and so I was, I was sort of, I was luckily in a position where he had left the publishing industry under controversial circumstances, very publicly. So. I actually, I, I had agents coming to me and asking to represent me, which was very, like, a very hey, privileged position flattering. to be in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know that, like, me and some of the other orphans from that uh, incident were, like, being circled like a hawk. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I was, I was already in a place where I was, um, I've, I, like, I've ri- I write YA, but I also, like, as you mentioned, I write music criticism. I do kind of, I do long form journalism. Um, I, I'm interested in writing for adults. Like I kind of, I, I wear different hats, which is not actually so common with YA writers, mostly because like YA writers are prolific. Like this, like you, Mm -hmm. if you're a YA writer, you're probably putting out a book every year. 
um, which doesn't leave a lot of room for extracurricular activity like mine, like writing for Pitchfork or whatever. So yeah. I, I wanted someone who could maybe represent me in different areas. And <laughs> like, it was a, like, it was a total moonshot, but you know, I was just riding the high of having, you know, not discovered Wallace, but read Infinite Jest for the first time in the pandemic year. And, you know, being just really, you know, having, having that shape my, my life in a big way. And I wound up writing to Bonnie Nadal and sending her a voicemail and just saying, Hey, um, my agent just left publishing and I have this book coming out and would love to chat. And she called me back and we talked wow, cool. and uh -huh. I sent her, I sent her the manuscript right away. And, you know, I was, you know, I was like, no expectations. She doesn't represent YA. Like that is that is just not her department at all, mm -hmm. um, with a couple of exceptions, which have, is which is mostly just like she's had a book do well in the adult market, and a YA publisher said like, hey, could we do like a young readers version of this, which happens mm -hmm. sometimes. Or actually, in one interesting case, she had a client who was Turkish um, write a couple of very successful novels about like life in Turkey, and then. American girl reaches out and is like, "Hey, we're doing this line of dolls that are like from different countries, and does she want to write like the YA novel about like the girl from Turkey?" So, <laughs> so Bonnie did actually. She has brokered one American Girl doll book, which does wow. make me wonder how close were we to a DFW American Girl book? Probably not very, but I'm sure you could write it for us, baby. Uh, <laughs> you're the guy um, to do it. Yeah. So. So I, I wrote to Bonnie, and I, and I sent her the manuscript, and I'm like, okay, you know what? She's not a YA agent. Maybe nothing will come of this, but at least I, you know, I shot my shot. And mm -hmm. I, didn't, I, I didn't even remember until after I'd sent it that the most recent draft was the one that included, like, the tennis players from Boston. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, no! <laughs> um, no, but she, she wound up being very charmed by the book, and... Um, and she and I have had an incredibly fruitful um, working relationship ever since. She is like, she is just lovely. Um, mm. She is much better at getting back to me than the last agent was. <laughs> say that. Um, That's worth no, but, a lot. Yeah, and she like I, I can say like not all agents do this, but she will really take on like an editorial role and like let mm. me know when something isn't working. Like help me shape things at the proposal stage as well. Like. Um, it's it's just it's it's to, it's a total joy to work with her. I'm I'm very I feel very lucky. Oh. Yeah. Have you brought up I've Wallace always... at all with her? Have you have you mentioned Wallace to her? Um, not honestly, not a lot. Like I yeah. and I, I say that because like I may, maybe it will come up eventually, but like you know, like this was someone who was like a very close friend of mm -hmm. hers, and I, I just you know I, I don't want to cross cry. that line exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did. Um, I will say, like, one thing that happened where I, I sort of did discuss with her was um, I, I spoke at the L.A. Times Festival of Books um, earlier this year and noticed that Michael Shore was also on the program. And mm. I knew that Michael Shore had, I believed at the time that he still held the film rights to Infinite Jest. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, last fall, I did a research trip to Harvard to go through the Louisa May Alcott archives in preparation for another book that I'm writing. Um, and I took a day at another library to read Michael Shore's like infinite jest thesis mm -hmm. <laughs> that he'd written as an undergraduate, which was just, it was incredible. Like infinite jest had come out like that spring. So we pretty much read it and been like, I'm writing That's my thesis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, 
it was just very like I'm 21 years old and buzzing about this incredible thing I just discovered. So it was just lovely. Yeah. Um, and then he was like yeah. the head of the of the lampoon for a while, yeah. right? And he invited Wallace to come to like their dinner, yeah. which he did, and they smoked cigarettes together. Yeah. And there's a picture of them. He talked about it on, yeah. a, on a podcast that was like three hours long. <laughs> so, yeah. So I when I I found out that Shore was coming to this festival, I I like took a deep breath and I was like. Bonnie, like, do you know him? Like, is there any way you could maybe introduce mm-hmm. me? And and she sort of clued me in on like the long and complex history of the Infinite Jest screenwrites, which we don't need to get into. But um, <laughs> I, I mean, anyway, they they I lapse want, yeah. they they lapse after like a year, right? Mm-hmm. It's more complicated than that, but I <laughs> we don't yeah. need to get into that on the record. But anyway, I wound up um introducing myself to Michael Shore at the festival, and he and I just like we had a lovely chat over lunch and. Awesome. It, like we're like everything is connected. It's the smallest world, but like his mother is a tour guide at the Louisa May Alcott House Museum. Holy <laughs> shit! Okay. So yeah, I right. sit down thinking like we're gonna talk about Wallace, and we spend the whole time talking about Alcott. <laughs> <laughs> wow. so, it was great. Yeah. I've had a yeah, couple of interactions awesome. with him on Twitter, and mm-hmm. he did respond to some uh, Infinite Jest yeah. stuff on, on Twitter. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, th- that's a really awesome yeah. story and like you know what you're saying about like you know bonnie not wanting to talk about wallace yet yeah. she still sells the wallace yeah. rights uh constantly mm-hmm. and even though she doesn't represent the estate anymore she still mm-hmm. does sell the the, the rights um uh, but i had a similar thing with like mary Carr. like mm-hmm. she just doesn't want to be asked about wallace anymore yeah. like imagine like you have your whole business you have all these mm-hmm. other writers and like people want to talk to you about this one thing or like mm-hmm. You know, Mary Carr's written like a dozen books and like people want to ask her about Wallace's books. Same things happen yeah. with Franzen. Right. Same yeah. and, and like I kinda get it, but it's sort yeah. of like it would be like I, I I compare Wallace to being like that important of a writer. It'd be like, Oh, and yeah, also I knew Ernest Hemingway and be like people like, Oh shit, like what what <laughs> yeah. what, what, what do you want to talk about that? Yeah. It's like, Oh, I'm sick of getting talked to you know, yeah. asked about Albert Einstein. It's like what yeah. what the fuck? And honestly, um, like I get that when I, I like we were probably half an hour into recording this or whatever, but before Bonnie's name came up, like I don't like when I do mention um, that Bonnie Nadell is my agent. Um, Wallace is the first thing people ask about more often than not. Even like <laughs> I sure. did, I did a, um, I like I did a, a speaking engagement at a school in Los Angeles and um, was chatting with the like the teacher who was like moderating and I was like yeah yeah Bonnie like she's represented a lot of cool authors and she's like I'm David Foster Wallace like, no. <laughs> but in fact like um I like I'd been on the Hill Nadella website when I was thinking about reaching out to her and like um Emily St. James is on there like a lot like um mm. a St. lot John. of people yeah like St. Like, John Mandel no 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 um <laughs> Emily St. James is the TV critic for oh sorry sorry yeah, yeah okay yeah yeah um, just so we, we have she probably gets story. that a lot. Yeah, yeah, she yeah but, like, we'll were, edit that um, out so I don't look like an yeah, idiot. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, so Emily St. James, Lila Sturgis, who's like a very cool, um, uh, like YA cart like um, comic writer. So like I, I knew like there were people I knew already, like and trans and queer people being represented. So like I knew that this was a place where like I would not be an anomaly, which was important to me. Mm, mm. Um, <laughs> So I like it was honest like it was obviously like I had like like I'm not gonna sit here and say like Wallace wasn't a factor but certainly not the only factor like it seemed for different yeah, reasons yeah. like that Bonnie was actually a good fit for me like she was someone who could help me publish nonfiction projects um, in addition to YA 
and yeah and so it's just been it's been lovely working with her and and it's been very exciting yeah but it's not cool. it's not something i've talked with her at length about yeah yeah <laughs> maybe I, down the line I, I, again i mean i i think it's just a testament to the this wallace's mm-hmm. stature and that, yeah. that you know there are very few other people mm-hmm. on her website who have like conferences devoted yeah. to them um Mm-hmm. So it, it's like it would be weird if I didn't ask you about yeah, it. No, of course, of course. <laughs> I, yeah, I was planning uh, to as well. So. Um, yeah, and I'm happy to talk about her because she's the best. And like, <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful working with her. Yeah, that's um, cool. Can you? Um, I'm really interested in your work with Pitchfork. Can you walk <laughs> us through like how that started for you? And like, you've done sure. so many reviews for them, and I looked through a bunch of them, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh wow, I love. Pine Grove and, mm-hmm. and Titus Andronicus and Lucy mm-hmm. Dacus and Pup and St. Vincent yeah. and all these other bands that you've reviewed. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've been reading Pitchfork yeah. for 20, 20 years, probably, or whatever, since it's, yeah. No, so, and I, I mean, I'm likewise, curious. like, I was, I was a 14-year-old who, like, still was like, Hannah Montana makes some good points when I discovered Pitchfork <laughs> and started, you know, like... And then you yeah. got into, like, Bell and Sebastian as your next step, I'm yeah, sure, right? No, from, and, from Hannah Montana. And, like, that, that Pitchfork has existed back in the day was, like, a very... It's it's a different institution now. I mean... Sure, yeah. The like Condé Nast takeover and all yeah, that. Yeah, like, I found something very funny. Like, they published a new, like, best of the 90s list, and mm-hmm. the, the best songs of the 90s did not have Neutral Milk Hotel on it. <laughs> Yeah, and that's um, fucked. On the new list. Well, yeah, and, but it was, and people were publishing, you know, like the um, the picture of Lennon with like his assistant who's then been like airbrushed out and it's like pitchfork leaving John Lacotel on the list. It was like, um, but yeah, so it's a different institution now. And anyway, yeah. when I started writing for it, um, I I was running a website with my friends, like, a, like no one was making any money off this website. We were just doing it for fun. It was called The mm. Niche. Um, and I wrote a something like 20,000 word article that was ranking every Sufjan Stevens song and yeah, not I just like some of this. yeah not just <laughs> making a it. list but like if I, I wrote like a paragraph for every song it took months like this and in some cases has... like multi 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 paragraph yeah it's like for yeah. for the Palisade song which was yeah. your number one that's yeah. a long entry yeah by like I, the top I 10 will... yeah <laughs> sorry I gotta say, I really mm-hmm. agree with your pick for mm-hmm. his worst song, which is Super Sexy Woman, which yep. I agree is, is total trash. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, I loved your entry for Come Thou Fount, yeah. which is, like, you know, mm-hmm. an 18th century hymn or whatever, and yeah. you're like, I have a complicated relationship yes. with Christianity, yeah. but this song captures mm-hmm. something really wonderful about yeah. maybe that tradition yeah. of, like, there's grappling and yeah. there's running away, and, yeah. Yeah, which so is, I, I, lo- I love that list. It's great. Which is a really wonderful thing about Sufjan Stevens is just like his approach yeah. to faith. Um, yeah. anyway, so that um, that article was shared by um, the reviews editor at Pitchfork, Jeremy D. Larson, and by the um, music editor at Billboard. And uh, they followed me on Twitter and I immediately <laughs> you know, sent them a message and, and uh-huh. started writing for both publications. Oh, okay, um, that's so that yeah. article did it. Oh, so okay, it was really awesome. lovely how Amazing. that worked out because that yeah. was I was not doing that with like any kind of expectation. It was just like mm-hmm. the world needs this definitive ranking. <laughs> how many yeah. hours do you think that took you to write? Like when I say it, it did take months and actually more because yeah. I yeah. very stupidly just did the entire thing in the WordPress backend editor. So then, oh. like I did, did you lose in, some stuff. I did lose some stuff. Oh um, yeah. So it took oh. it took a long time, but. 
I was sort of, I, I was going through like a pretty bad heartbreak that fall and it was like the only thing mm. I was working on. So it wound up being like a path through that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> gotcha. so, so yeah, I started writing for Pitchfork then. It's, it's been a really fun experience. I've got to do some really cool things. The editorial, like I've written for places where like I submit a draft and they just publish it. Like there's no editorial <laughs> interference at all. Um, because the digital media ecosystem is hell. But, like, at Pitchfork, <laughs> I always get edited at Pitchfork. I, I get mm. edited rigorously, and I really value that. It has made me a much better writer. Um, mm. I've gotten to do, you know, sometimes I um, pitch a review, sometimes I'm assigned, so I get to kind of step out of my comfort zone. Um, sometimes I get to do really fun stuff. Like I got to review um, Peppa Pig's second album. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. What rating did you give it? I got a six point five. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. So technical question: Do you shoot? Do you with each individual <laughs> review? Do you decide on the rating number, or is there like an aggregate of other critics? Yeah. And you sort of sit down. And you're like, what are we scoring this yeah. at? So I, I can suggest a score range, and sometimes, usually that's like honored, and sometimes. The editors, I had one review where I just like hated the album and the editors were like, okay, but we love this album. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, fix the review and the score range is not going to cut it. So <laughs> um, yeah, this is fun. Yeah. A funny thing about Pitchfork's mm -hmm. history is yeah. like uh, Andrew WK's I Get Wet when it came out got yeah. like 0. 0.5 <laughs> out of 10 or something. Yeah. And then, you know recently yeah. they came out with a list of what was the best albums it was best new reissue like, sorry we yeah. fucked up this is a 10 10 yeah. out of 10 or whatever it was know? pretty yeah like yeah. i think the the andrew wk record which is phenomenal by the way it went from 0.6 on release to like 8.6 best new reissue. <laughs> yeah totally so, yeah and and i i think there's an acknowledgement of the way that like you know sometimes pitchfork gets it wrong well, like pitchfork is mm -hmm. also like a 25 year old institution at this point it's now yeah. i think it might be the only um music publication edited by a woman of color like the editor-in-chief mm. is Pooja Patel like um so the perspective now is very much like you look at the 90s list there are a lot more women on that list there are a lot more people yeah. of color on the list yeah. like it's getting into histories that were neglected before so um totally. and lots of different genres of music too right like it used to be just indie rock basically yeah. and now it's yeah. like hardly any indie rock and it's tons of like rap and r&b <laughs> when when they gave Taylor Swift an 8 out of 10 the Swifties were <laughs> incensed they were very upset and I, I, I read one tweet that was like hey pitchfork how about you hire some indie reviewers so you can properly review this taylor swift indie album which is very funny uh, sure. that's the irony's right yeah and it, yeah the, the peppa pig thing was very fun um because i like pitchfork used to have like the reviews used to be pretty mischievous like sometimes a review there's one album by jet where the review was just a like an embedded a video monkey of a monkey peeing into, into its, its own mouth. mouth. Right. <laughs> yes, so, I remember it fondly. <laughs> yeah, so with like Peppa Pig, I was like, <laughs> Peppa is a four-year-old pig. There aren't a lot of pigs in the music industry, so she's really fighting an uphill battle to be taken seriously in the pop sphere. You know, like I was completely deadpan. <laughs> Hamming it up, as it were. Hamming it up, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what's really, you know, like the review was a lot of fun to write, but like just the the image of like peppa pig's face next to like 6.5 like, yeah i any, laughed at that yeah anytime <laughs> any major artist gets less than a 6.5 like pep is going like <laughs> peppa pig is like next to jack harlow's face or drake or whoever and it's like uh-oh um i got like i got on cnn for inciting beef between peppa pig and kanye west 
over that. <laughs> like you were a talking head on CNN? No, it was like like they put up a screenshot of my review oh, with my okay. byline on it. And we're like, Amazing. because Kanye got a six, which is lower than a 6.5. And then the official mm. Peppa Pig Twitter account was like, Peppa didn't need to like throw parties at Mercedes-Benz Stadium to get that extra point five, and and so there was a feud. Um, <laughs> it's just oh, that's a lot of fun. Amazing. I love writing wow, for Pitchfork. Sorry. I I recently uh, I panned a kind of a very kind of niche popular pop star, which you never want to do because that's where the fans are most vicious, and they were was not. Was it Ariana Grande? No, it was uh, Tuvalu, mm. and who I, who actually I really like. Um, but this record was just, it was a real disappointment for me. And mm. anyway, so so her fans were very upset and they dubbed me the Pitchfork Twink. And I was like, very well. I mean, <laughs> if I'm <must." laughs> So, yeah, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy writing for Pitchfork, yeah. What's the highest um, score you've given? Gosh, I think, I think it's an 8.1 um, or an 8, which I gave to... That's um, pretty tough. Yeah, well... They, you know, they're, they're very stingy, like, yeah, like they're really, really like tough about scoring at Pitchfork. There's a real, yeah. um, they don't do great inflation as it were. Um, <laughs> sure. and like, there's been a couple times where I've, I've like advocated for an album to be best new music and I just haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't went out, but, um, I mm-hmm. think the 8.1 was for, um, Taylor Vick's album as Boy Scouts, which was self-titled, I believe. And um, Black Belt Eagle Scout, I just love Scouts, I guess, um, mm. her album, At the Party with My Brown Friends, which was also really excellent. And oh, yeah. so I recommend those. She played Victoria a few years back on yeah. the top of a parking parkade, and it was lovely. <laughs> I went to it. Yeah. 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 So and, I want to do. Sorry, go back. I, I'm just ready to go to, back to David Foster Wallace. Time. All right. Yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> we excluded you from the last 20 minutes of conversation. No, I mean, I'm making notes. I'm making notes. This will this will go into my uh, discovery list. And actually, the, I, I did when I was preparing for this interview and I did write down a couple of music questions, which um, were basically one of just them about the Jens Lechman interview that Peyton did with Jens Lechman. See, I've heard that name. That. I have listened yeah. to Jens Lechman before. All right, yes. Yeah. I did not write that down specifically, but go Who ahead, I Dave. Love. Go yeah. ahead. I read it this morning. I love mm-hmm. him too. Yeah. yeah, he just and he, he's an interesting case because he is a totally. he's an artist from Sweden whose um, work is very much based on sampling, um, mm-hmm. and often unauthorized sampling because you know because he was like a twenty four year old in Sweden when he made these albums, right? Yeah. yeah. And so um, one album, um, "Oh You're So Silent, Silent Jens," has been off streaming for like decades because of a sampling issue. print on vinyl too. Yeah. And so it's a situation where like there are Jens Lechman albums that I've listened to like hundreds of times and then, oh, you're so silent, Jens is like, okay, I've listened to this on YouTube a couple times because it's just harder to track down, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, so when I interviewed Jens, he said like, so for like he got a copyright. Um, finally, it was he was getting in legal trouble with... Um, Night Falls Over Court Dollar, which is like an excellent foundational indie pop album. Yeah. Um, and he decided, he's like, I just have to re-record them without the samples, which is gutting. Um, but he was saying like he knew it had to happen when um, one of his oldest and like best known songs, Black Cab, he played it at a show and then like a teenage fan came up and he's like, I really like that new song you played, Black Cab. And it was like, uh-huh. he was like, oh, <laughs> that album is dead. We need to fix it. So 
Sorry, I yeah, was that reading was... that interview this morning at the uh, mm-hmm. the like the vaccine clinic because I got my booster oh, yeah. this morning, hey. my flu shot, and mm-hmm. I was and I laughed out loud a yeah. little bit to myself at that line. That's very funny. That's great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. and and maybe this can pull us back to Wallace because like Wallace, <laughs> no, seriously, because Wallace Sorry. was writing. <laughs> he was still writing in like a very analog world. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and he was looking ahead and trying to envision what life might, might be like, you know, there are scenes in infinite jest, passages in infinite jest where like he just describes Netflix and zoom and, and sort of anticipates the problems that are going to arise. And I think that, um, you know, like a lot of issues with, um, sampling and copyright and just the way that music is produced now are fundamentally shaped by streaming and social media and, even the way that like songs are structured now, like you see fewer bridges in pop songs because mm. in order to be, you know, viral on TikTok, they have to be short, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. some, yeah. sometimes a hit song can be nothing but the like... The medium's the message. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. I, you know, and, and that's such a such an integral theme of Infinite Jest that like I find myself thinking about it all the time mm-hmm. when I'm, you know, thinking about like the way that music is released or the way that like a song will go viral off of like a single phrase that is popularized on TikTok, which is so different right. from from what it used to be. And um, and just the ways that, like, sample clearance becomes a whole legal headache. And even oh. now, like, not even, not even sampling, but, like, this is, like, and this is me, like, waving my doomsday flag here, but, like, some, like, a couple of recent instances, like, a song will like someone will get a songwriter credit like based simply on vibes or like um vibes <laughs> no truly like um well the like there was that court case involving blurred signs with blurred lines by robin mm-hmm. thick which is a despicable song i'm not here to defend that song but sure is, they yeah. they lost a court battle from marvin gay's estate who said that like they'd ripped off marvin gay and like i don't know by like making kind of a marvin gay type sound which i you know like there weren't any samples or lyrics pulled from it it just it felt like a marvin gay vibe and that was enough in wow, a court in like really? the 2010s to to hand a win to the marvin gay estate or like olivia oh. rodrigo who's a very popular up-and-coming yeah. um pop artist um her song good for you hit number one on the billboard charts and people were saying oh this you know this reminds me of paramore's song misery business like no similar me- no no identical melodies no lyrical similarities mm-hmm. nothing Paramore has a writing credit on that song now like after it's released they were they wow, were awarded really? a writing credit which oh my gosh is nuts to me like um yeah. so, so which, litigious so i think i think that's a real problem <laughs> is mm-hmm. is that like i think we need to be i think we need there's actually a very straightforward system in the music business for covering a song if you just want to cover a song and not modify any part of it um like you can do that you just have to hand a portion of the royalties to the original artist Mm. like you if if taylor swift wants to cover like i don't know kanye west (laughs) let's just put that out there she can do it seems unlikely it seems (laughs) unlikely but she, she can do it and she can give him money right and and, sure. and this isn't like Ryan Adams, who again is despicable. <laughs> like he sure. did, he did a full album that was just a cover of Taylor a Taylor Swift, Swift album. Yeah. And he was able to do that. 
it just meant like Taylor Swift got like ninety percent of the royalties or whatever. Like there's just oh, a is standard, that how much? Wow. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. There's just a standard royalty rate that like you have to pay, and so any artist like hmm. Taylor Swift can cover a small artist, and she pays them all the royalties. A small artist can cover Taylor Swift and pay her the royalties. That's just how it works. And I think we need a similar system for sampling. Um, hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but anyway, when David Foster Wallace was writing an infinite jest about like cartridges and the future of like streaming and advertising becoming less important, I think he was anticipating some of these issues because. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my, my music question for you was actually about what or if mm-hmm. you listen to music while you read or write. Ooh, yeah. So I definitely, um, I have, the, the short answer is yes, and I have playlists um, that are sometimes just chill, writing music. Um, I have, for this current project that I have going, which is a contemporary interpretation of Little Women, I have a, so- a playlist of about 100 songs that just like remind me of the story that I'm telling. Um, and I, I won't listen to that while I'm writing because some of them are like high energy, like screamy rock songs, which is not <laughs> conducive to writing. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll go out for a walk when I'm stuck and listen to them and try to connect with the mood that I need to. Um, and actually there was, so this Little Women book, there's a scene or there was a scene in the draft, and which I think will survive. We'll see. It's, it's still being written um, where one character takes a long Greyhound bus journey to visit another character and is is just like when I finally meet this person in person, like, they're gonna fall in love with me, and we're gonna run off into the sunset together, and so I made a, I, I, like, I made the playlist that that character would listen to on that Greyhound bus trip, (laughs) and then I listened to that playlist while I took the Greyhound bus trip in real life. Wow. (laughs) I could just fully, like, be in that character's head as they went from Boston to Pittsfield, I'm like, ooh, like, (laughs) we're an hour in, we're listening to Adele, like, we cannot fail. Like, it just <laughs> put me in that character's head so completely. I I went really method, yeah. It was so a lot of fun. Is, I'm so glad you asked that question about it because that was a, such a much cooler answer than I was anticipating. I love that. Yeah. Well, and I love the idea of, like, a mood board that's, like, audio only because yeah. obviously yeah. audio matters a lot to us. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you brought up the, the Little Women book, and mm-hmm. uh, I read your piece in oprah daily yeah i read read uh, that as well today about um you know sort of the the gender or sexuality of louisa (laughs) may alcott herself which i knew very little about going into that article um so i I basically could you summarize that for us quickly and and how Mm -hmm. that maybe led directly to your next book yeah and and podcast and podcast yeah so i am um i'm the host of a podcast called joe's boys a little women podcast where I read through Little Women chapter by chapter with uh, a guest every week, and that's a lot of fun, and you should check it out. Um, (laughs) But my interest in this was piqued by the 2019 film by Greta Gerwig um, Mm. and some subsequent writing about um, Alcott, in which one quote in particular was circulated, which went, Alcott had said, or like had written in a diary or a letter, like no one was really clear on the sourcing on this quote. Which made me more curious. So, Ellicott said, or wrote, or whatever, I have often thought that I may be, by some freak of nature, um, a man's soul put into a woman's body, dot, 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 because I am more than, because I have been in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. So, people were pointing to this one quote and saying, like, she might have been queer, who knows? 
Um, and I dug into it, and the quote, like, it's it's a misquote. <laughs> um, and it's been misattributed as, like, a journal entry or a, a private letter. It was actually a very public interview that she did. Hmm. And it began with, um, as a child, I often thought that I was a horse bef- before I was Louisa Alcott. I used to just enjoy playing like a horse and running through the fields with my nose in the air. Now, I am more than half persuaded that I am, by some freak of nature, a man's soul put into a woman's body. Mm. And that was the full answer. And then her interviewer said, oh, interesting, why do you think that? And she said, well, for one thing, because I've been in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. So, um, that when I discovered the full quote, it was like, okay, interesting. Like, it wasn't just, like... You know, because there'd been some debate about whether to read that quote about, like, is she trans? Is she a lesbian? And in fuller context, it becomes clear, like, this is someone who identifies with manhood and also is attracted to women. Like, those things existed simultaneously. And so I've, I've at this point, like, I've spent extensive time in the archives um, at Houghton Library at Harvard and at the Concord Free Public Library in Concord um, of Alcott and her family. Um, I've read her letters and journals. I have, um, I've done, I, I'm in the Louisa May Alcott Society as well as the David Foster Wallace Society, right? Um, and, Is there a lot of overlap between those, between members, have you noticed? Well, <laughs> no, but I mean, we can get into the, the similarities between Little Women and Infinite Jest mm. later if we mm-hmm. want to. Um, That's fun. But, you know, what I have found is like from Alcott's childhood to her deathbed, she was incredibly clear about not feeling like a girl, thinking she should have been born a boy, thinking there should have there had been some mistake, wanting to be a man, um, actually shortening her name in private life from Louisa to Lou. Like, no one ever called her Louisa. Um, she signs every letter Lou or L.M. Alcott, right? Um, and the way that that um, real sense of identification with manhood and disidentification with womanhood comes through in Little Women in the character of Joe, who is sort of her fictional avatar. Um, like, most people, if they know Alcott at all, they think, okay, she wrote Little Women. It's a book about girls. It's a book mostly read by girls. I guess she was a feminist. Like, <laughs> that's that's where the understanding kind of begins and ends. And actually, like, I have had discussions with, like, turfs, like, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which radical is actually, actually a term that I don't like to use because they're not feminists. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally. <laughs> like, I've had, I've had people like that come into my space and, you know, and, and make very, you know, like, I know more than you statements about Alcott. And when it becomes, like, I, I try to be polite, like, I answer, I'm like, actually, um, you're mistaken, and, and this is what she actually said, this was the nature of her life. And they just stop talking, because, like, <laughs> like, they can't win this. It's like, it's yeah. it's one of like sometimes there are unanswered questions about an author's sexuality like I actually and I think Alka is actually a good example because we have that quote from near the end of her life where she says um, I've been in love with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man but she did actually have uh, one ro- romantic relationship with a young man and which like appeared to be very sincere and um, she like. She never married. She talked about like not wanting to marry. Um, she never, but she never had any kind of like close female companionship. Like the, we don't have like um, 
Vita Sackville West and like Virginia Woolf letter or anything like that. Um, there's some evidence of her like flirting with girls. Um, there's also a lot of her saying like, I don't like girls. When she was asked to write Little Women, she said, oh, I never liked girls or knew many, but I guess like, <laughs> right. so, so like it really, it seemed to fluctuate throughout her life, whether she was interested in women or men or simply like not interested in romantic relationships at all. So that, like, I think the question of Alcott's sexual orientation is one that's quite, uh, like, unanswered maybe in her own lifetime. Like, maybe mm -hmm. she didn't even know. Um, or maybe it was very fluid for her. Whereas um, the question of Alcott's gender identity is not vague at all. Like, she was very clear. I long to be a man. I am by some freak of nature a man's soul in a woman's body. Like, <laughs> pretty mm -hmm. clear declarations. Yeah, so. <laughs> and... Yeah. And in many ways, like, Alcott did, like, um, th there were contemporaries of Alcott who did, like, transition and live as men. Like, um, Albert Cashier mm -hmm. is one good example. Like, this is a person who was born female and then lived and died as a man. And that wasn't Alcott, but there were meaningful ways that, like, Alcott did what we might consider um, elements of transition. Like, going by Lou, um, not marrying, taking on, like, masculine roles in the family. Um... Her father describes her at one point as my only son. Um, mm. Alcott, in like private correspondence and journals, describes herself as papa to her nephews or like um, father. She, when when her sister's um, husband died, she wrote, "I must now be a father to these children." Like, mm. so there there's evidence that like she saw herself within her family. And I'm saying she, her, but like, which sucks. But I, <laughs> people get mad at me if I don't. Mm. Um, <laughs> like, you know, like she saw herself as like a son and a father and in Little Women, which is what we might call autofiction, um, mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. a scene where Joe is incredibly frustrated. She's like, I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy. And one of her sisters strokes Joe's head and is like, you'll just have to be content with making your name boyish, Joe, and playing brother to us girls. So like there was mm -hmm. an understanding of like social transition if not medical transition for the period yeah. so that's that's what piqued my interest in um alcott and little women and this project that i'm writing is a um an ad a contemporary adaptation of little women in which some of the characters are trans and i'm not doing anything radical here as much as just like excavating what's already in the text right yeah, like yeah. that's cool if you pick up little women and just put your finger down like you will be probably shocked by just how forthright some of the like gender politics is <laughs> like oh, yeah. it's huh. it's it really leaps off the page so yeah that's that's my work and we can loop it back to dfw if you want to because well this let's is a... let's stay with alcott for okay. a minute because because i yeah. um my mom was a huge fan of yeah. the little women books like a lot of mm -hmm. uh, women in her you know generations and going mm -hmm. back were and I remember the copy of the book that we had at home as a kid. Yeah. There was like a portrait of Louisa May Alcott and the big, mm -hmm. the, and she always looked really sad to me. Like she always looked like yeah. a very yeah. <laughs> um, sad character. But like I, I you mm -hmm. mentioned this in your piece that like it's mm -hmm. it's sort of ironic. She's become this sort of. Yeah. like ultimate woman like she yeah. wrote little women and like that's mm -hmm. like her identity is wrapped up with this idea of yeah. like womanhood and yet mm -hmm. if you actually read i think all three of those books about like yes. joe's boys 
it's mm-hmm. much more like complicated than that. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. there, I mean, there are similarities with the school and like, mm-hmm. you know, the the boys. Like, I see that as an <laughs> adult now. Like, yeah, you're writing a campus novel about yes. a bunch of yeah. guys who go to the, you know, in, in yeah. Massachusetts, nonetheless. Like, yeah. And, um, <laughs> so I, I definitely see those mm-hmm. similarities, but like. Mm-hmm. Were you, was that a book that you picked up as a kid or how, what was your introduction to, to Little Women? Oh yeah, no, I mean, Little Women was given to me as a very young child, um, just as a classic of children's literature and especially of literature for girls. And I mean, in case it's not obvious, I am trans. So I did like come up as a girl, right? Mm. <laughs> so Little Women was put in my hands, right? Um, I love that uh, bio line in the, the yeah. book jacket where it's like uh, Peyton was the captain of the debate team at his all-girls high school it's like yeah it's like, <laughs> so so, good. so i was like given little women in a way that like my brother wasn't right um mm-hmm. even though when it was originally published it was just little women was just an across the board hit for children um and kind of the core cast of little women um the basic narrative is like it's it's based on alcott's own life and growing up with her sisters it's very it pulls a lot from lived experience um but the one innovation is that a boy moves in next door and kind of becomes a part of the family and joe gets to have this friendship with this boy next door that allows her to kind of be more open in her gender identity and the boy gets to be part of a world of women so um in that way like the main cast was sort of it was co-ed and initially it was read and loved by um boys and girls to the extent that Alcott wrote sequels that were called Little Men and Joe's Boys that were intended to appeal to all children, right? Um, and so, and but it's interesting how, like, Little Women now is, it's the one people read. Like, Little Women and, sorry, Little Men and Joe's Boys are not anywhere near as popular. Um, when the movie adaptations are made, like, Little Women is it, right? Um, and it was also something like Alcott, it wasn't really where Alcott's heart was writing-wise. Like, the Alcotts grew up in really dire poverty. Um, Alcott was working for a living from a very young age, and writing for a living, um, mostly kind of like really tawdry, like horror stories <laughs> for, mm. for the local paper. That's awesome. Um, which also um, dove into like themes of cross-dressing and like posing as another gender. Interesting. So, mm. but... When, when she was asked by an editor to write a book for children, for girls, actually, she said, I, I don't enjoy this sort of thing. I never liked girls or knew many, but whatever. Like, I'll just write about me and my sisters. That was her, her plan. And it became a smash hit and took over her life and became, like, the thing for which she was known. <laughs> um, it also made her incredibly wealthy and able to support the family for the first time. Um, her father was quite mentally ill and just wasn't able to be a breadwinner. Like, her mother was kind of the breadwinner of the family, actually. Um, and so Alcott was, had come to a place where, like, now, like, had found this phenomenal wealth doing something that she really didn't like. <laughs> um, and additionally, um, Alcott served, um, Alcott really wanted to enlist in the military. She wanted to be a soldier. Some of her most intense longing to be a man in like letters and correspondence and journals comes from this period where she wanted to enlist. Mm. And the compromise was that she enlisted as a nurse in a US military hospital for um, black soldiers um, and worked there for a few weeks before developing 
uh, typhoid fever and becoming incredibly sick. Um, and, you know, medicine being what it was back in the day, they treated that by dosing her with mercury. <laughs> so, Sweet. Wow. <laughs> so she yes. recovered from the fever, um, but she had, like, lifelong mercury poisoning. Um, oh. And she died very young as a result. And she, was, she had chronic pain as a result. So, like, this was, this was a disabled person who um, really was, like, working against incredible chronic pain to write these books that she hated. <laughs> and... And and feeling till the end of her life that like just she was a man's soul in a woman's body and like just very uncomfortable with that. So what you said, Matt, about just like being able to read that sadness in her eyes is, I think, true to an extent. Like, and I don't want to. Like, I, I also think she was a very funny person. I think she was someone who was surrounded by love. She loved to be active. She had very warm family relationships and friendships, especially with like young men in her life. But no, certainly, like, it. I don't think she got to live the life that she wanted to live. She didn't get to write the book that she wanted to write because um, there was... after. So Little Women was published in two halves. And after the first half was published, people wrote to her saying, well, I want Joe to marry the boy next door. And she was horrified by that because, <laughs> like, she had not ever envisioned that as a romantic dynamic. Like, um, it was it was very much for her, like, about like a kind of a freedom of gender expression for Joe. And she writes like angrily in letters and journals, like I'm not going to marry Joe to Lori to please anyone. It's not happening. And like, and, and so little women ends in this, like what she has said was like, she was trying to piss people off. She was like, I can't wait for all the angry letters. <laughs> like, so she had Joe married off to this like German professor who was twice her age. <laughs> And it's just, like, about the most unsexy figure you can imagine. And the ending pisses everyone off. Like, no one... (laughs) (laughs) And it was, like, it's been... People say, like, it was editorial pressure to marry people off. And and that's true to an extent. Like, she does indicate that. But it was pressure from young girl readers who she really resented. Who were like, I want Joe to marry Lori. And... Alcott was like, I, I want more for Joe. Like, that's that's not what, like, I am Joe, and that's not what I want. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic of just someone who was, I think, just a real genius, but never really got to express herself the way that she wanted to, I mean, which, which is sad. Based on a lot of that, you know, what you've said, mm-hmm. I think that it's um, uh, exciting to think about what, what we're going to see from you next in your next yeah. book. <laughs> Um, I want to bring it back for a second to your current yeah. book, which is both sides now. Mm-hmm. Joni Mitchell reference. Absolutely love Joni Mitchell and wish yes. that um, she would put her music back on Spotify. <laughs> she made her point, I feel like, with the Joe Rogan thing. Uh, uh, but, yeah. you know, if it's okay with you, one thing we haven't sure. done yet is um, uh, ask you to read from it. And I would, oh, actually, I would actually like to just read a bit um, sure. of a place that I... Yes. I really like Dave and I do this a lot where we'll okay. just we'll just read yes, our favorite yeah. bits of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a really um, sad part. Like the, the book mm-hmm. has romance. It has humor. It has sadness. Mm-hmm. It has like the struggle to live your authentic life. Yes. Um, and a lot of great comedy. Clam jamming. That was great. That was sort of cock block. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like, you know, the, the poignant parts of it mm-hmm. for, for me were 
you know, it's really important. There's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of big topics that are that are yeah. covered here in a really humane way. So mm-hmm. um, this part that I wanted to um, bring up is it's like midway through the book and mm-hmm. the main character Finch, he finds mm-hmm. out that his mom has been laid off mm-hmm. and they are going to have to cut back and that includes like maybe not having health insurance Mm -hmm. and so the mom reaches out and says i this is from page 118 i know finch mom reaches out squeezes my hand it's going to be a hard few months maybe longer Mm -hmm. we're all going to have to sacrifice some Mm -hmm. everything i've just eaten threatens to come back up but i need surgery it's not something i can just can just sacrifice Mm -hmm. kid listen dad sets down his own fork this operation you want, we're talking thousands of dollars. You know we don't have it like that. But but it's not, I'm not asking for it, I stumber, struggling for the right words. I need this or else I'll go to college this fall and I still won't be able to go out when it's hot or go run or go swimming. Mm-hmm. Or, or, and then mom's hand in my own presses harder. I know, honey, she says, and I'm so sorry, but there's nothing we can do. You're just going to have to stick it out a little longer. Yeah, and like Rue says, that's the sibling. Mm -hmm. Mouthful, you don't really do that much running or swimming anyways. (laughs) Because I can't. I bring my fist to my Mm -hmm. chest, my heart feeling the sleek, constricting fabric under my shirt, which is the binder. Mm -hmm. With this thing on, I'd be risking my life. Risking my life? Jesus, Dad snorts. He wipes his mouth, tosses the napkin down, stains blooming all over it, and then he turns to me and points a finger. Listen, you... You're not in danger. This house is in danger. Our mortgage, your tuition, that's in danger. My body is my house, I want to tell him. It's where I live. I haven't felt safe in it for a long, long time. And I'd give up anything, give up Georgetown even, to finally, finally have a home of my own. Man. Yeah. That was... That's, that was... That's a great passage. Yeah. That, that right you. there, man, I, like... <laughs> you know, I, I... Yeah. I just love the way that you you phrase that. Mm-hmm. It's really oh, yeah, thank pow- you for powerful. It. It's, yeah, that's one of the more direct passages in the book just about trans experience. Mm-hmm. And really, I, I don't know that people who aren't trans can really grasp how limiting some of these accommodations can be. Like if you think about having to wear a essentially a compression garment around your torso, mm-hmm. um, I, I was going to say 24-7, but you actually can't. You can only safely wear it for about uh, six or seven hours at a time um, mm. before it starts to be really painful. <laughs> um, you know, like that, that creates all kinds of issues if you want to be someone who exercises, if you want to go out on a hot day. Um, I've had experiences where, like, I have been unsafe because I've been in a, an area where, like, it was too hot and I was wearing a binder, right? It's... Um, I, I, I got surgery, you know, after Both Sides Now was published and I had, like, the money to do it. And I I hadn't even grasped, like, when I wrote that passage, like, what an impact surgery would make on my own life. Mm-hmm. Like, there there are just so many things that I just, like, I didn't even think about that had become second nature to me. So I'm glad that it connected with you as someone who doesn't have that experience because well, that's, yeah. Well, and I think that's what you want from any good fiction yes. is, to, is yeah. for, totally, you know, yeah. to leap mm-hmm. over that wall of yourself mm-hmm. and to, to really live in, in someone else's shoes for a minute in someone else's yeah. life. And I think, you know, people who are trans who are read this and have had mm-hmm. that same experience is probably more powerful for them. Um, yeah. And, you know, like you say, writing for yourself in some mm-hmm. ways is, 
one of the best audiences you can you can have uh, yeah. because if you believe in it i believe that you know that that it will find the other people who are either like you or not i mean really mm-hmm. what i think you're describing in some ways is a sort of a universal problem it's very specific to to yeah. a really um you know you know mm-hmm. oppressed group right now um, yeah. and and people who honestly don't know m- much about it like me i'm yeah. older yeah. and you know i was thinking when i was reading this book like mm-hmm. I am probably closer to your parents' age than you, yeah. Peyton. And like when I, when I was in high school, like I knew mm-hmm. no one who was out. Yeah, like yeah. it was impossible. And mm-hmm. of course, later on, as we grow up, and like you know, over the past ten, fifteen years, I see oh, there mm-hmm. was actually quite a few gay people I went to school with. They just couldn't yeah. be out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the same this thing is true with trans. And now that I have mm-hmm. high school students of my own, and mm-hmm. I see how much more. Like, it feels like in some ways, like, mm-hmm. the kids are okay. Like, are you optimistic about, you know, kids or, like, you know, looking back on your own experience, mm-hmm. going back, like, are things are getting better in some ways? Or some We've already said things are getting worse yeah. in some ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think it honestly depends on what part of the country you live in, um, mm-hmm. in a very serious way. Like, I think there are there are kids i don't worry about at all and then there are kids who i really you know i I think about um there are some states that have actually banned um gender affirming care for um trans teenagers and and like there's a lot of fear-mongering um about that and a lot of misinformation like people like you know like we're not like children's hospitals are now like getting bomb threats because someone on Fox News said that they're mutilating the genitals of four-year-olds, which I can tell you is not happening. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. Like, wow. um, and I can tell, like, may, like, and this is, like, you said, like, there was stuff that you maybe didn't know, Matt, reading the book, um, about trans people. Like, I, I wrote both sides now for trans teenagers and also in a very real sense for, like, their parents or, like, mm-hmm. anyone who just doesn't know much about trans experience. Like, I wanted it to be very accessible. Um, and, like, one thing that I don't think many people realize is that any kind of gender-affirming surgery on a teenager is extremely rare, if not, like, there are certain procedures that are not performed at all. Um, like, top surgery is sort of the only one, and that's really only performed on people, like, over the age of 16. Like, it's top surgery just being a, a mastectomy. Yeah. Um, and... You know, so mostly, like, what gender-affirming care means for teenagers and, like, first of all, like, it doesn't really exist for children, <laughs> like, for, for, like, people yeah, who haven't reached puberty totally. yet. Um, but, like, gender-affirming care essentially just is, like, um, their prescription drugs called puberty blockers, which will delay puberty. And these effects, the effects of these prescriptions are fully reversible. Like you go off the puberty blocker, puberty begins. Like <laughs> it's, right. it'll, it'll only affect you for the length of time that you're on it. Um, and once, if you're like, you know what, actually I'm not trans, you stop taking the, the medication and puberty just begins for you. Right. Um, that's like, so, so we're talking about a incredibly safe prescription drug that is prescribed very rarely for like that and that is completely reversible and like this has become the subject of so much fear mongering and misinformation it just boggles the mind so that's i mean that's that's what we're up against and like there are kids in states who can't have that 
and I, it just yeah. it, it's it's bad. And, and even in Texas, you know, I do know uh, some parents who are super yeah. accepting and mm-hmm. I guess I know it more from the parents point of view than from the kids yeah. point of view right because like I say when I was a kid there was mm-hmm. that was not an option yeah but now from a parent's point of view yeah a lot of parents are very clued into this very early and it does seem mm-hmm. to be better um frankly the younger they start <laughs> like yeah you know that that if kids are 18 mm-hmm. it's much more of a difficult transition in some ways mm-hmm. than yeah. kids that are socially transitioned at a younger age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a couple of individual kids and like, it's very even yeah. weird to even like talk about it in a general way because they're so yeah. specific to yeah. these kids. And like yeah, each yeah. case, it just makes me feel like that is yeah. no one it, like, like abortion, like no one else should be involved <laughs> in that decision except for yeah. these people. And like yeah. to talk about each one of those cases, it is very hard for me to even generalize. Yeah. Um, and and mm-hmm. I really just hate how much of a political issue Texas in particular has made yeah. of, of it. Like, cause we have all these other real fucking problems that the government needs yeah. to be dealing with. <laughs> and, and instead our governor in particular or Lieutenant mm-hmm. governor is just obsessed with like, how can we terrorize these poor yeah. children? Most of whom yeah. are not athletes and do not want anything yeah. but to be left the fuck alone. And, yeah. and yet, they're, they're just so targeted. And I think from a parent's mm-hmm. point of view, that is a role that we can play to protect kids. And yeah. so, yeah, um, I'm really glad to hear you saying that um, like, we need more people out here defending these kids. Um, and, and I'll say also like um, trans youth are the focus because they're an easy target. It's very easy to play the think of the children game. Right. Um, th- there's actually some liberal support on this because like you have feminists saying, oh my God, you're taking these young girls and saying they can't be tomboys. They have to be trans. <laughs> like, which is, no it's, one's it's saying that. No, no one's one is, saying yeah. that. <laughs> no one is saying that, first of all. But it's, it's very easy to do a think of the children panic. And some of the rhetoric actually on the trans side of like, children will die because of this. It's like, okay, but also like, I know trans people who came out at like 50 and 60 and are very happy. Like there's, this is one, like there's no, like it's not a race. Um, Like, and, and obviously like the concept, like basically puberty is irreversible. Like you, but there are like, that's why medical transition exists for adults. (laughs) You know, like it's possible to transition. And you know what I, like what I would say to kids in States where like, puberty blockers have been outlawed or like in Texas where I believe like um, parents of trans children can be prosecuted as child abusers like um, if leaving the state is not an option for you like there are adults who transition as adults and are very very happy like it's not it's not a race it's going to be okay (laughs) is what I would tell these kids yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. so um, I wanted to um ask basically we've covered a lot of everything from yes. fan fiction a little bit of high school debate yeah. uh alcott mm-hmm. wallace music um anything but i, I, I wanted to, to music anything mm-hmm. we didn't hit that you wanted to you know kind of final thoughts that you wanted to final thoughts to add in so well, I just mean, for anyone who's listening <laughs> yeah so i mean i I imagine I, I know that um, Concavity Show began as the Great Concavity and was a Wallace focused podcast. I know that many of your listeners are just Wallace devotees who may be like, 
Alcott. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, I don't know anything about that world. And so this is my pitch. Okay. <laughs> Good end of if, if you are a fan of Infinite Jest and you're like, what's Little Women all about? Let me tell you. Okay. Like Infinite Jest, Little Women is set in Massachusetts, right? Um, <laughs> at, during a period of North American civil strife, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so I'm drawing the lines. Civil I'm making war. the connections. Yep. <laughs> um, uh Sisters instead of brothers, but still like family life and siblinghood is a very, is a prominent theme. A protagonist for whom virginity is a lifelong goal, um, a a lexical prodigy of a protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we have one uh, one like very sweet sick sibling, and we have one sibling who's mm. slutty. And a, <laughs> I mean that in like a fun sex positive way for Amy March and like a derogatory way for Oren. To be clear, <laughs> um, we have an absent father figure. We have a very present mother right. figure. <laughs> All of these and more. Similarities <laughs> between infinite jest. Also, I, I don't know if people realize, like, Little Women is a brick. Like, that is a very long book. Like, um, the full, like, the two halves of Little Women, like, you're not going to get an edition that's, like, less than 500 pages. Like, it will keep you absorbed for a very long time. And famously unfilmable, even though um, <laughs> several Little Women movies have been made. Um, right. it, it is a real struggle for people to adapt just because of the structure and because the ending is so bad. <laughs> like, frankly. <laughs> um, if you're unfamiliar with the most recent movie, like um, Greta Gerwig, and I love this movie, like we're approaching the ending, like Joe is about to like run into the arms of her German professor, and we mm-hmm. cut to a scene where like another Joe is, like, in an editor's office with the manuscript in front of her. She's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not marrying her off. Like, fuck you. And, <laughs> and then have an argument, and basically, like, she negotiates for a higher fee, and it's like, fine, I will marry the protagonist off. And then, like, the swooning kiss happens, and then we just see Joe, like, watching her book get printed. So it's, like, very yeah. much, like... It's transactional. It's, like, transactional. Yeah. It's, like... Yeah. Uh, so, or, and meta-aware. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, postmodern yeah. in, a, in a way. Totally. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, that's my, that's my attempt to say, like, if you liked Infinite Jest, you may also like Little Women. It may be a very different book from the one you're expecting. So, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a and good pitch. Can, yeah. Yeah. I'm sold. I've never read Little Women. So <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm adding it to my to-be-read list. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. And in fact, we had an author on last year, Steve mm-hmm. Erickson, who recommended um, Bronte and mm. uh right. wuthering heights and mm-hmm. like i think some people were surprised by that but like yeah. a, a lot of these books yeah, that are that like sold to mm-hmm. us as classics like for a good fucking reason like yeah. you know what i mean like wuthering heights still <laughs> yeah. holds up and it's like you know what i think little women is worth reading and i, I think there are a lot of books that you know especially mm-hmm. were not given to boys you know that yeah that yeah. should have been like wuthering mm-hmm. heights is another one where like yeah. my mom loved it and it's like mm-hmm. i'm not gonna go watch a jane austen charlotte bronte and it's like oh <laughs> these are great fucking books yeah like yeah. for a reason and i mean i'm lumping these in with like brits but like yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just that the, uh, the label of like a classic you mm-hmm. know something from the 19th century yeah um maybe it's not the first thing people pick up no but, no uh, yeah it's it's if we have to convince them we you know go for it <laughs> yes um, yeah it's like that's that's my pitch like adult uh, men read little women <laughs> all right i love yeah. it mm-hmm. 
Peyton, that's great. Thank okay. you so much for your time today. Yeah. Uh, what is the best place people can pick up your book, Both Sides Now? What's sure. the place where you get the most money from them buying it? <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, I, I honestly don't know about that. I I usually say wherever fine books are sold, which excludes Amazon. <laughs> sure. I don't like Amazon. Yeah. Just buy it anywhere but Amazon. Ideally, you're like around the corner. Um independent bookstore but local indie yeah. bookstore yeah. if you don't have yeah. that barnes and noble is fine um. jim Gow- jim gower yeah. on our show once said please don't do mm-hmm. the bad thing yes and by that he meant buy it from amazon yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah um doing the bad thing just buy it anywhere you want as long as you don't call me late for dinner i guess um <laughs> awesome um where can people find you online peyton what's what are some places people should check out we'll link to all this stuff in our uh, show notes so well like there are fewer nowadays um <laughs> twitter just, yeah twitter <laughs> twitter i think is not long for this world yeah um, it feels that way doesn't it? i had like quit twitter when when like the the elon musk deal was like announced and then went back to it mm. when he bailed and then quit it again and now it just looks like everyone is quitting and it's a gong show so I, yeah. I'm not on social media anymore in any meaningful sense. Um, mm. But my website is PeytonThomas.ca. Um, I'm usually pretty speedy about getting my stuff up there. And you can listen to Joe's Boys, a little women podcast, which is updated week, uh, bi-weekly. Yeah. Bi-weekly. Wow, that's, that's yeah. a rapid clip. Oh, as in, bi-weekly <laughs> as in every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's, our, our clip is yeah. like bi-monthly, like every two months. <laughs> yeah. Love that. Love that. Yeah. That's Mm-hmm. So anyway, th- thanks again. We have a couple of housekeeping yes. things Dave will do, okay. and then we'll um, stick around for our, our Patreon subscribers. Yeah. Um, All right. Matt, where can, where can people find us online? We, we mm-hmm. are Concavity Show, uh, sometimes on Twitter, depending on what's <laughs> going on there. Like I say, yeah. it, it does seem like they could be bankrupt tomorrow. I don't know what the fuck is going on. Um, and Instagram, we do post occasionally on Concavity Show there. And mm-hmm. we love when people email us, which is concavityshow at gmail.com. And um, I think that's it, Dave. Thanks to Parquet Courts. And thank you, Peyton. All right. Thanks yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Catch me now as I say. darkness I thought to be extinct and then if people have to subscribe to our patreon to to get the bonus part so. wonderful yeah. okay okay yeah yeah I love the line in your book is like all I need is a patreon and I'm set <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah I can I can ID with that one yeah <laughs>